0: We're talking about Healthy Correction today. We've been going through the series that is probably one of the most uh, different, diverse series from anything we've ever done, anything I've ever done, as we're talking about marrying together neuroscience and theology. It's not many days that you hear a sermon that brings together science and theology, not to mention neuroscience. We started our teaching series by talking about the fact that many of us are trying to grow Spiritually, in soil that's depleted. The author of this book that we've been reading was talking about trying to grow tomato plants, and at first the harvest was wonderful, then every year it was less and less because he didn't realize that tomato plants deplenish the soil greatly and you have to replenish the nutrients. And that happens with us spiritually many times. And some of the signs of that is that we have minimal fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We struggle to experience the joy, the peace, the love. The patience, the kindness, the gentleness that Scripture has called us to exhibit. And also we find ourselves exerting the same amount of energy and sometimes even more energy with diminished results, uh, with decreased results. And so you're like, I'm working as hard as I've ever been working and sometimes even harder and the results are less and that can be frustrating. And then finally we, we find that we often have decreased motivation. And these are all signs that something is wrong in our life spiritually. We went from there to talking about the fact that many of us are living what is called half-brained Christianity. It doesn't mean that we're half-wits. It doesn't mean that we're stupid. It means that we are not engaging all of our mind. And Jesus called us to love him to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So we're, we're called upon to engage all of ourselves in relationship with God and then to channel that love toward others as well. And we found out that oftentimes, if you want to call it left brain, right brain, many of us are left brain, we're analytical, we're detail, analysis oriented, we're not the creative right brain side, but the right brain is responsible for spiritual formation, for character development. And so if we're ignoring that side of our mind and not nurturing it and growing it, what does that say about the changes that we try and make spiritually in our life? At best, they will be short-lived and not long-term. So we address that. David did an awesome job weeks ago. He did a great job last week as well, and thanks so much for him filling in while the rest of us were at camp. But about three weeks ago, he talked about the either-or fallacy. And so many times in life, we look at life as kind of like an either-or proposition, and we take sides, and we live from one extreme to the other, kind of this pendulum, pendulum swing of going to one extreme or the other, and we, we follow things out, and then when those things don't work out successfully, we think, well, that wasn't the answer, and so we go to the opposite direction, when the truth is that most of life is about balance, it's about finding balance in the middle, And uh, a lot of life is a both and rather than an either or. And so we talked about what that looks like. We talked about spiritual formation and how it is that we grow spiritually, how our character is shaped, and about how the right hemisphere of our brain creates our working identity and that it processes life at a speed of six times per second versus our left side of our brain, which processes at five times per second. And so the the result of that is that oftentimes we feel things intuitively before we even know why we feel those things, and certainly before we can uh, speak about them. Because of this reality, images of truth and Christian living are often more helpful than mere words or principles. Having an example of somebody in our life or someone who's gone before us that has modeled for us what truth looks like and what it means to successfully navigate the challenges of life and live in a way that honors God is oftentimes more spiritually formative for us than to just know a lot of truth, a lot of head knowledge, but not be able to to process that. Most recently, we talked about three transformational catalysts in our Christian walk the first was joy and we define joy and the author defined joy in a beautiful way that I had never really heard of before but that joy is what we experience when we're in the presence of those who delight to be with us of those who delight to see us and as we trace that out we talked about the reality that that is exactly how God feels about each one of us and for many of us that's just like that's that's too much to fathom That God could could experience delight over my presence rather than shame, you know, or condemnation of all the other images that come up. And so what does it look like to to live life in the presence of those who delight to be with us, and especially a creator God who feels that way about us? Week two, we talked about hesed agape community. Remember, hesed is that Old Testament word that is uh, lacking in English, lacking a definition by any singular word in English because it means mercy, it means love, it means uh, grace, it means unconditional favor, it's just all of these things bundled together. Then the New Testament equivalent of that is agape love. Agape love speaks of God's love, God's unconditional love toward us, love that does not love people that are worthy of love but actually instills value and worth in the objects that are loved, and increases their value and worth because of that. And so we are to find a community of people that we can trust and that we can do life with, that will encourage us in the Lord, that will hold us accountable. And that's uh, a transformative thing for us, to be able to to live out our Christian faith, linking arms with people like that rather than doing it alone like we often do. Last week, David talked about group identity, which for many of you, you're like, well, what's the difference between peer pressure and group identity? Well, think of group identity as the best possible form of peer pressure. Group identity are other brothers and sisters in Christ who constantly remind us of who we are. Who we are in Christ, in our relationship with Him, and who we're called to be, so that when we get off track, they can lovingly say, hey, that's not the way that we act in this situation. God has called us to better than that, and and rather than condemning us, they can come alongside of us and journey with us as we try and live out our identity in Christ. Maggie touched upon the fact that today we're looking at the fourth and final transformative agent, which is healthy correction. And healthy correction is one of those things that we kind of grit our teeth and buckle down because most of us like hate to be corrected. Like, who are you to correct me? Who do you think you are? (coughs) Many of us are timid to correct another person because we think the same thing. Who in the world am I? They're going to think I'm an egomaniac, that I'm, you know, or they're thinking I'm coming from a place of superiority or whatever it is. So, what does it look like? to engage in healthy correction. What is that that all about? Um, And I want to begin today with Proverbs 15. There's two verses in Proverbs that kind of set the the tone for this this topic. Proverbs 15, 31 says, Whoever heeds life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. Whoever heeds life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. The very next verse says those who disregard discipline despise themselves, but the one who heeds correction gains understanding. So if you despise yourself, if you want to destroy your life, then shut yourself off from any healthy correction. Finally, Proverbs 12 verse 1 says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is foolish. So it's It's in being open and receptive to healthy correction that we grow, and that we're challenged to lay hold of all that God has for us. Neuroscientists tell us that character is formed from two libraries that we're constantly drawing from. The first is our life history of observed responses to how to act. So we watch our parents, we watch our siblings, we watch our friends, and how it is that they react to different situations in life. And that becomes kind of a template for us of, okay, so that's, that's what behavior looks like, be it healthy or unhealthy, functional or dysfunctional, whatever the case. But that becomes one of the libraries that we draw from. The other is the values of our people the people that David spoke of last week, our group identity, the people that we choose to associate with. And that's why scripture says bad company corrupts good morals. If you associate with those that that draw you away from the Lord and away from spiritual things, it's it's going to affect your behavior. It's going to affect your values. And conversely, if you hang around people that are headed toward the Lord and pleasing the Lord and and living out His will in their life, that's going to challenge you and stimulate you to, to love and good deeds. So we're constantly drawing from the images of behavior that we've seen as well as the values of our people, the people that we love and respect who represent our group identity. Now, a common misunderstanding is that character is defined mostly by moral truth and by choices. And when we see a flaw in another person's character, we're tempted to think, well, they must not understand God's teaching on this. Otherwise, they would have made good choices instead of bad choices. But here's the problem. It's not just knowing what God's Word says about things. It's about whether we value that. It's whether we have chosen to align ourselves with other people who value that as well and other people who are striving to make that a reality in their lives. And so that speaks again to our group identity. It's true that bad choices are involved in bad character. But if we want to improve our behavior, we have to change our values. We have to change what we prioritize, what, what's important to us. And we do this through stored examples or stored images of how our people act in these various situations, group identity. Uh, That's one of the reasons why I love Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter of Scripture. People call it the Hall of Faith as opposed to the Hall of Fame because it's all the heroes of the faith, both Old Testament and New Testament, who have ran the race successfully before us, the race of faith, fixing their eyes upon Jesus the author and perfecter of faith. And so they have run the the race well and they testify to us that the race is runnable and it's winnable and this is what it looks like to do that successfully. They have modeled for us in advance what it means to follow God. Abraham modeled faith even before Christ. He believed God and that belief and that faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Rahab, let the spies in through the wall into her house, even though she was a prostitute, the most well-known woman in the city, she had a complete 180 in her life, and she gave her life over to the Lord to be used by God for his glory and his kingdom. All of these different people, many of whom were were greatly flawed in their character and had a lot of low points of sin and, and shameful experiences, and yet God, by his grace, touched them and turned them around and used them for his glory. And so we can identify with these people because we're not all perfect, but what does it look like to follow their example? And the reality is that we need Christ-centered, Hesed, agape community to help us act more like Jesus. People who are more mature than we are. People that are ahead of us in life and can can lead the way and show us what it looks like to gracefully navigate life in a way that pleases the Lord and that benefits other people. Now, this is the part of our message today that I want you to stick with me because many of you, uh, as when I first read this, are going to go, wait a minute. And so I want you to hear me all the way to the end on this because it's kind of a hard pill to swallow. And many of us will jump to conclusions about Lessons that we've previously learned or heard that we just kind of have held to be true. And and, and this is the point. Neuroscience reveals that shame, yes, shame is necessary to change our character. Shame is an essential part of our socialization, and without it, our character won't change. Uh, Here's the thing, there's an interesting system in our brain that determines whether or not we're going to make a change in our behavior and in our actions. The brain corrects problems only if it causes us discomfort or pain. And so, most of the time, if something isn't painful enough or awkward enough, we just don't address it. The other problem is, oftentimes we will feel shame, we will feel discomfort, we will feel pain... And we will medicate it with addictions and with other escapes. Like, I don't want to feel that. I don't want to experience that. I'm going to run from that. And I'm going to hide from that. And so we never address the trigger that shame was meant to address. Now, what we're going to learn today is that there's a healthy shame and there's a toxic shame. And there's, they're worlds apart. And that's, that's where the truth of today is found. But unfortunately, the common problem or issue is that we try to stop the pain without making the necessary relational repair that would correct the cause of the pain in the first place. It's like, here, here's a great example, and, and, and this is my experience and many of you have experienced this. You're laying in bed at night and a smoke detector alarm goes off. And you're thinking, great, I have about 30 of those in my, in my house now, and I don't know which one it is. And so you're kind of going to each one and standing underneath it at 2 in the morning in the pitch black while the rest of your family is going, make it stop, make it stop, you know. And unfortunately, in our house, many of them require a very tall ladder to get to. And so it's not the wisest thing to do to stand on a 10, 15-foot ladder in the middle of the pitch black when you're tired and groggy. And so, what ends up happening is oftentimes you just rip that sucker out of the ceiling and you pull, and even after that, they keep going until you like rip the battery out as well. And you're like, I'm going to deal with this thing in the morning. And hopefully, if there's a real reason to worry, all the other smoke alarms will help me with that. But we never look to find out what caused this thing to go off. We just assume, hopefully, it's a faulty battery. We do the same thing with shame. When we feel shame, we try and avoid it at all costs. We, we run from it. We hide it. We deal with addictions and other things to stuff it. So I want to look at what, what is shame today, and, and what, how should we properly understand it and react to it? Well, as you remember, and as I said at the beginning today, we define joy as when we're in the presence of those who delight to be with us those who delight to see us. Think of shame as the exact opposite. Shame is when by nonverbal reactions uh, through the faces of others, because we detect shame by facial cues and by voice tone, but we sense that other people are not happy to be with us. They are not happy to see us. And one of the feelings that that gives us is shame and and we we feel horrible inside. And as i said there's a life changing difference between toxic shame and healthy shame. So i want to unpack those for a moment here. Toxic shame communicates the message that we're bad without offering us a way out of our badness, if you want to say badness is a word. It leaves us in our shame with no solution or no help. Some of the common messages of toxic shame are, you're stupid, you're fat, you're ugly, you're skinny, you're dumb, you're clumsy, you're awkward, and the message is, and you always will be, you know. One of the, my favorite jokes is Winston Churchill, I guess at one point, was approached by some lady who said, sir, you you are drunk, you know, and he says, yes, ma'am, and you are ugly, and tomorrow I'll be sober, you know, <laughs> <laughs> And his message was, yeah, I'm drunk right now, but you're ugly and you'll always be ugly. And that's the toxic message that we hear, people, is that I am trapped in this horrible place, in this unfavorable, undesirable situation, and I will always be like this. And the more we accept that, the more we compound that and magnify shame in our life. And shame can be super, super destructive Toxic shame not only fails to address the parts of our character that need to change, but it causes great damage. And we've all experienced that at one point or another in our lives. Condemnation is one of the most common forms of toxic shame. And I love what the Apostle Paul says about condemnation in Romans chapter 8. Many of you have it memorized. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's where we all take a big sigh of relief. And I love what verses 33 and 34 say in chapter 8 of Romans to follow that up, uh, especially in the New Living Translation. There's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us, and he was raised to life for us, and he is seated at the right hand of God pleading for us. What a beautiful image. The the one who matters most in our life, who is delighted to be with us and see with us, has said, there's no condemnation in me. I have canceled out your sin. You are righteous, you are perfect in my sight. Don't let anybody else blackball you or, or mark you as, as flawed for life. And so that's, that's toxic shame, and that's, the worst of that is, is condemnation. Healthy shame, on the other hand, doesn't leave us alone. A healthy shame message communicates, I love you, but I believe that you stopped acting according to your true identity. Let me remind you who you are, how the people of God act, how the children of God behave in this particular situation. And when I was reading that, I thought, that is so Jesus. That is so Jesus, and that is so the gospel message. The woman caught in adultery. Where are your accusers? They've gone, Lord. Neither do I accuse you. But go and sin no more. We've talked about that many times. Jesus does not say, Hey, I'm okay with your sin. Just keep on sinning all day long and I'll just come right behind you and clean it up. No. Like, Like the woman at the well, another woman. You've been married to six men. You're with the seventh man now. How's that working? It's not working out. You're empty. You keep coming to this well but you don't realize there's a well that you can go to and never have to go to again. It'll give you an internal spring of water that will well up to eternal life. And she's like, I want that. And he's like, I'm the guy. He who is speaking to you is the one who can give you that. So Jesus models for us what it means to confront sin in a healthy way and yet not lose the relationship and not, not leave people where they are, but offer them a way out. And that is what he has called us to do as his followers, is to lovingly confront sin and draw people out of that. Not from a place of superiority, but from journeying alongside of them. Hey, I'm on the process of journeying out of sin myself. Why don't you join me? And we can both find grace and and restoration in the Lord. That's what healthy correction looks like. Our agape hesed community helps us regulate the emotional energy of shame. Because shame, shame is draining. When we feel shamed, we, we don't have energy for anything. We feel like losers. We feel like, why try? We lose our motivation. We, we lose our confidence in ourselves. Because we feel like, I am, I'm, just, I'm horrible and I will always be like this. But hope offers us a way out. The gospel, Jesus offers us a way out. And our community reminds us of that. Without chesed agape community, shame will push us to isolate and to hide. God knows the pandemic did that for many of us. Shame does the same thing. It causes us to, to draw away from our community because I can't be with them. They're better than I am. That I might be exposed if I go there. They'll think less of me. They won't love me anymore because um, they think I'm such and such. And when they find out I'm really this, then that'll be the end of it. And so we, we isolate, we hide. And that causes us to sink deeper into unhealthy shame, toxic shame. Shame can either bring us closer together or it can push us farther apart. And the, the choice is, is how we allow it to take root in our life. Without a relational solution, people will eventually try and silence their pain with destructive things like addictions, like I said. Because none of us wants to feel that pain, that discomfort, that awkwardness. And so we either run from it or we numb it with addictions. The last thing that we do is address it. Because sadly, most of us have never learned how to experience shame and stay relationally connected. And if you hear nothing else today, that's the golden nugget right there. To experience healthy shame, to confront our sin... Not First John, if we say that we're without sin. That's what the world is doing. The world is redefining sin because sin makes me feel bad. I don't want to admit I have sinned and that I'm guilty and that I'm flawed because I don't have a solution for that because I've rejected God and the existence of God and the atoning death of Jesus. So there's no answer. But if we say that we're without sin, we make God a liar and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, literally if we say the same thing about our sin that God says, there's healing, there's forgiveness through Jesus. That's the answer. But most of us have never learned how to experience shame and stay relationally connected. So the the golden nugget of today is that how do I walk through periods of shame and learn from it, not alone and isolated, all by myself, but how do I do that with other brothers and sisters in Christ who love me and extend grace to me in the midst of that because I know that they're in the same boat I am and it's not, oh, they're better than me and they're going to help poor little me, but we're doing it together. We're linking arms. That's a picture of Christian community. And when we use shame in a healthy way, we always affirm the relationship above the problem. When we seek to correct someone using healthy shame, it should always be couched in relationship, in hesed agape attachment. We should never blindside people and come alongside of them and just, you know, talk about, hey, how how the Dodgers? And yeah, then just, oh, by the way, I wanted to confront you. And, you know, and they're just like, whoa, where'd this come from? You know, the best way is to come alongside of people understanding that we're, we're in the same place. And so we We use shame in a healthy way, always affirming the relationship above the problem. Our eyes communicate that our relationship isn't at risk, even though the person messed up. We do that as parents all the time. With our kids, you know, hey, you messed up, but I love you and I will always love you. This doesn't affect us, but you you need to address this. You can't continue to act like this because that's not how Dupars act, that's not how Children of God act. We're we're better than this. And Christ has allowed us to be better. And so let let me help you to find a different path. That's that's healthy correction. Once the security of our relationship and our attachment is understood by both of us, we address the problem. Instead instead of saying you, we we say we, which affirms our group identity. We're in this together together. We don't leave the person alone in their shame. In effect, we communicate, you have forgotten who you are. Let me, let me remind you of who you are, who we are. We are a people who do such and such. And I'd love to help you with that. Most of us would respond very favorably to that, because it's not finger-pointing. It's not, I'm better than you, and I'm I'm right now in a place of, you know, moral superiority, so I'm going to reach down and help you, but it's... You know, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, and most of us would gladly receive this type of correction. The problem is we've never experienced it. We've never had anyone model this for us. The truth and the principle of this is my favorite part of The Lion King, the animated kids movie in 1994. Those of you who watched the movie, you, you know, basically Mufasa, he's the Lion King. And he ends up being killed by his jealous brother, Scar, played by Jeremy Irons perfectly. Scar kills Mufasa and blames Simba, Mufasa's son, the little lion cub. He gets Simba to think that he's responsible for Mufasa's death. This sends Simba to wander off from the tribe and to go out on his own and just do some total soul searching. And he basically feels his life is over. And that he's, he's screwed up, and it's, it's curtains for him. And he runs into this uh, crazy little monkey called Rafiki, which used to be my daughter's word for graffiti. She thought, you know, oh, look at all the Rafiki. We're like, no, dear, that's graffiti, but pretty cute, Aubrey. But I, I love how Rafiki draws him to this, this pond, and he says, your, your dad is still alive. He's like, no, I'm sorry, you're misinformed. My dad is dead. No. You, your dad's alive. I just spoke with him. And so he says, look into the pond. And, and Simba looks into the pond. He sees his own reflection. He says, no, no, look deeper. And then there's one of those kind of heavenly moments where Mufasa's up in the clouds, kind of like Christ speaking to his son. And I love, I love the words that he says. He says, Simba, you are more than what you have become. Remember who you are. You are my son and the one true king. And I feel like that's what Jesus and God the Father say to us. Remember who you are. You are more than what you have allowed sin to make of you. You've struggled, you've slipped, you've fallen, but you are better than this. Because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Because your God will supply all of your need according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus, on and on and on. But it's, it's remembering who we are. With that as a backdrop, I want you to quickly turn to John chapter 21. And I want to lead you through one of the most beautiful passages, in my opinion, of correct, uh, healthy correction, which is modeled by Jesus and it's administered to Peter. John chapter 21. I'm going to fly through this and I'm going to. You've, you've probably read it many times. You've heard it many times. I want to draw some application. John 21. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself in this way Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and the two other disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, We will come and join you. So they went out and got in the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Kind of reminds us of a previous story. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, (laughs) grown men fishing, they do this for a living, and he kind of says, children, have you caught anything? Uh, And they're like, no, we haven't. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find a catch. Which they probably thought, who in the world are you to tell us how to fish? And we know what we're doing. But they've had another experience with Jesus where uh, it was very successful. So they cast the net, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who we know is John, the apostle who's writing this gospel, said to Peter, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in a little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. When's the last time in John we read about a charcoal fire? It's at Jesus' trial. And they're standing around a charcoal fire warming themselves, and Peter three times denies his Lord. So that's the imagery of the charcoal fire that Jesus is kind of recreating here very tactfully. Jesus said to them, verse 10, "...bring some of the fish which you have now caught." Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not torn." The previous time they had the huge catch of fish, the net tore. The difference is now the resurrection. And Jesus is saying, you're going to catch as many fish as your heart's desire because there is no capacity to the net because of the, the resurrection power that you have now. You can do all things. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you? Because they all knew inside, it's the Lord. Remember, Jesus looked kind of different after the resurrection. That's why Mary mistook him for the, Mary Magdalene mistook him for the gardener. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The first time they were all together in the upper room, everybody but Thomas. The second time Thomas was with them and he's, they're trying to convince him that Jesus is risen. He's like, I'm not going to believe unless I touch the scars. And so Jesus walks through the wall, and Thomas is speechless. And Jesus says, do you believe now? Put put your finger in the holes of my hands and in my feet. And Thomas is like, my Lord and my God. I, I don't need to do that. I believe. So this is the third time that they're all together or mostly together as a group. Verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, What you need to know in the Gospel of John is that Jesus has never addressed Peter as Simon since the day that he renamed him. The other Gospels, not so much, but in the Gospel of John, he never calls him Simon again except now, after he renamed him Peter. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And, And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. The question is, first of all, um, why does he call him Simon? Uh, the simple answer to cut to the chase in my mind is because Peter has reverted to his old identity. This is the third time that Jesus appears to them. And I'm thinking, if it's a week since your Lord has risen and you're just out fishing... What does that say about your priorities and what you value? Man, I, you know, maybe Jesus wasn't always available and accessible and where is he, but I would spend every second of every day looking for him and wanting to be with him if I knew that my Lord was risen. Peter has gone back to his old way of life. He's gone back to fishing. And do you love me more than these? Uh, There's three genders and languages. There's masculine, feminine, and neuter. Uh, Masculine and feminine we get. Neuter is kind of neutral. And there's an argument over, what, what is these? Is it, do you love me more than these other guys? Meaning, you know, you're the one that said, if everyone else denies you, I will still follow you. So really, how did that work out? I, I don't believe Jesus is doing that. Do you love me more than you love these guys? That's another possibility. The third possibility, which isn't brought up much, but which I tend to believe, is Jesus is cooking fish on the fire, and he asks them to add fish. And he's saying, do you love me more than these? Really? I called you. Remember when I said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men? And you're back to fishing. And this clearly isn't for your living and for providing. You're just, you're out spending the time fishing with these guys. They decided to join you. It was kind of a recreational thing. Really? That's the best? Like, I called you to fish for people and you've reverted to this. And so, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Tend my lambs. Verse 16. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. You've heard many pastors say, Jesus in the Greek says, Peter, do you agape me? Peter responds, Lord, you know I phileo you. You know, I don't love you unconditionally. I love you as a friend, if you want to draw the distinction between agape and phileo. Again, Jesus says, do you agape me? And Peter says, Lord, you know I phileo you. And so finally, Jesus says, Peter, do you follow me? And many pastors will say, Jesus is same, do you, do, you, do you love me? Do you love me? And then finally he says, do you even like me like a friend? I don't believe there's a distinction between the Greek here. I think that's petty and Jesus is not shaming Peter in that way because to believe that would be to believe that Jesus is asking Peter if he loves him, but he's finally settling for friendship because Peter the third time says, Lord, you know I follow you. And Jesus kind of goes, oh, that's good enough. That's not what Jesus is doing. I believe this is the difference. Jesus is saying, do you love me? Do you love me as your God? Then tend my sheep, feed my sheep, help my sheep. What Jesus is saying at the end by do you phileo me is love for me translates into love for your brothers and sisters. If you really love me, then go out and do the great commission and tell others about me. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. He's speaking of the fact that Peter will be martyred for his faith. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God, and when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, who writes this gospel following them, the one who also had leaned back on Christ's bosom at the supper and had said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing John, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. Therefore, the saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, only that if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? John's writing that about himself. This is the long story short. Jesus is saying to Peter, I'm letting you know in advance that you're going to end up dying for your faith. And so for you to be able to do that, you got to stop looking at other people and comparing yourself and, you know. what what do they get to do, and why, why don't I get to do that? It has to be about you and me, and you have to be willing to follow me no matter what. Otherwise, you'll never be able to do what I'm calling you to do for the kingdom. And God says that to each one of us. Don't worry about the person on your left or your right or about your spouse or your family or friends. You follow me. And I believe this is the healthiest type of correction that you can ever see in Scripture because... Peter denied his Lord three times, and it's being reversed now by three affirmations. It's a do-over. It's erasing the guilt and the shame of the past and saying, we're a new chapter, and I am recommissioning you to do what I called you to do, to fish for people and not for fish. It's an example of healthy correction. I love it. I want to give you three quick images today to take away. The first is conscience and conviction. Which we know the Holy Spirit plays a big part. Within every single one of us, there is a voice that says, oh, I don't think you should do that. I don't feel right about that. Even Hollywood acknowledged this when they did Pinocchio and they created Jiminy Cricket, who's Pinocchio's conscience that follows them around to tell, you know, everyone knows they have a conscience. Most people ignore it to the point where they stop hearing it. But we have a voice inside that speaks Jesus said before he left, I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit into the world. His job is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so we understand that we're convicted by our conscience, and that's God holding us accountable. And I I would say to you, if you have a moment where you revert to your old identity and you blow it privately and no one knows about it, one of the best things that you can do is later on publicly confess that to a trusted friend and say, you know, I, I, I had a setback. And and I need you to hold me accountable. I need you to be able to encourage me and lead me out of shame back to my true identity because this happened, nobody else is aware of it, but I trust you that you'll be confidential with this. I trust this, that you have my best interest in mind and you're going to help walk me out of this. So the first is conscience, conviction of the Holy Spirit. The second is the image of a compass. When you're out in the wilderness, a compass always helps you find true north. A compass orients you when you're completely disoriented. It's the instrumentation that helps you when you're completely lost, you don't know where you are and how to get where you want to go. And and friends, that's God's Word. That is God's Word. God's Word is true north. That always lets us know exactly who we are and who we're called to be. The book of James talks about it as a mirror. When we look in the mirror, we see how we look. We can either address it or we can walk away and ignore it. But God's word is a mirror of reality that we place and that we constantly go into God's word to see who he's called us to be and how we, st- how we measure up to that. So God's word. And what I love about both of these first two images is you can do these even apart from anybody else. We all have a conscience. We all have conviction. We all can go to God's word. It's not always the healthiest thing. And that's why the third image is your community, your Hesed Agape community. To to find a hesed, agape community, whether that's your small group, whether that's a a trusted individual or a few individuals that you go to and say, hey, would you journey with me and help me to to not live in shame? Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is an excellent example of intentionally forming group identity before he addresses the change that needs correcting. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who are... You know, this is the identity of what it means to be like. Then he addresses all of the correction changes and character changes. After he says, this is a picture of what the people of God look like. Now, therefore, let's address the things that need changing. And our community can help us do that. As I said, shame can either bring us closer together or it can pull us apart. Our our community of hesed agape friends, those who we trust to always speak truth to us, even when we don't want to hear it those who always have our best interest in mind, those who remind us who we are in Christ and our calling to live for Him. Our agape community reinforces our joy and actually uses correction to do that, not only to build our character, but to maintain the joy level of, of our other brothers and sisters in Christ as well. And unlike toxic shame, when we accept healthy shame and healthy correction, we feel better, and our relationships are strengthened in the process as well. And our community reminds us of our group identity, which David shared last week. comes so beautifully from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. You are a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, Who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. How interesting that the most beautiful description, in my opinion, in all of scripture of group identity comes from the person who perhaps struggled with identity the most, Peter. But Peter was drawn out of shame and restored and recommissioned by his Lord, and he writes this for our benefit and for our health. So, wrapping this up real quickly, when we share our character flaws with a trusted friend, we're not only sharing our weakness, which increases chesed community as we're vulnerable with each other, but that at the same time, we're modeling that we're eager to accept correction, if I, if I share my flaw with you, that means I'm eager for you to draw alongside of me, not to condemn me, not to talk about how much better you are, but to, to help me be drawn out of shame. And so it accomplishes two things. It strengthens community, and it models what healthy correction looks like, two essential nutrients of, of healthy spiritual soil. And as we get used to the benefits of healthy correction, we will actually get to a point in our life where we we anticipate it, where we look forward to it. Because we know that our brothers and sisters are helping us to look more and more like Jesus every day. Instead of, oh, I, I screwed up again and they're going to tell me what a loser I am and all the things I did wrong. No, they're helping me look more and more like my maker. And one day I'm going to see Him face to face and that'll be completed and perfected. And the rest will be history. But until then, my brothers and sisters are used by God to help me Look more and more like him. So a few action steps as we, as we close on this. One, pray that God will help you to be more open and receptive to correction. We all need to do that because every single one of us does not like to be corrected. We get defensive. We, we justify our sin. We run from it. We hide it. We, we numb it. So pray for God to help us be more receptive and open to it. Secondly, find a trusted friend or find a group of people that you trust will will be confidential, that you trust will help you, that will have your best interest in mind, and that will lead you out of places of shame. And then finally, perhaps help someone out of shame, particularly maybe somebody that you've condemned in the past. Maybe there's somebody in your life that you have sent a message that you're ugly, you're stupid, and you're always going to be that way, and you are responsible for the the shame that they are living in right now. And so it's, it's, yeah, it's you coming alongside of them and helping them, but it's also you confessing, I'm responsible that you're in this place and I've realized my sin. I want to ask you to forgive me. And I want to, I want to journey with you into a place of, of light and a place of true identity. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is a light into our path, a lamp into our feet, that your, your word is a mirror of what you desire for us and who we are in you through your Holy Spirit, who we are through the resurrection and the, the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. And God, we realize that everything we're talking about today takes, takes time. It takes repetition. That's what training is all about, consistent repetition over time of putting these things into practice. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not an immediate change. But God, as your people, as a group identifying with you, we are called to encourage each other toward godly living and toward obedience and toward um, being conformed and transformed into your image. So help us. Help us to do this in humility and patience and love, always understanding there but by the grace of God go I always understanding the depths from which we have come and that we are only who we are through your grace and not because of our moral superiority. God, as we give today out of the resources that you provided for us, may we give with joy, knowing that whether we give a little or a lot, that you multiply it to meet the needs of this church and the, the ministries that we support locally and internationally, as well as the missionaries that we support that are further in your kingdom. And so, God, Thank you for what you have given to us, and we pray that you would use it abundantly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.